It's Todd coming to you from the uh, Verona Sports and Spirituality Library here in my, in my, in the museum, museum now of the uh, one and only, the Gata is uh, at my side and she is going to be running the show today for me. So good luck to everybody who's listening. <laughs> she gets pretty animated, let's just put it that way. All right, here's the, uh, I'm going to start out the intro. I'm going to be reading a book called Ten Rings by Yogi Berra that he had about the ten championships of the New York Yankees. So this is a uh, this is a book by Dave Kaplan. Yogi Berra is the uh, author. And 2003 is the, uh, is when all the stuff went down for this book. And he went through and described the, uh, 10 championship years that he got a ring. So, what's, what's the book without reading the introduction? I got my job and desire to play baseball as a kid. Because it always, it was all we did from summer, from, from morning till it was dark to see. We played a lot in the street in those days, including football, soccer, corkball, roller hockey. Nothing was organized. We just organized ourselves. And we had fun. We turned an old clay mine, actually a garbage dump, into our baseball field, grabbing some flour from the local bakery for the baselines. We also dug a big hole and pushed an old junked out car into it. That was our dugout. Our neighborhood was the hill. Italian, the Italian section in Southwest St. Louis. It was one, it was also called Dago Hill, a place where we'd find that everyone was from the old country. It still spoke Italian and had all the old customs. My father was a tenant farmer in Northern Italy near Milan which was terrible, deep, terribly depressing. A few years before World War I, he left to find a new life. He made his way to St. Louis like other Italian immigrants. He got work as a laborer and saved up some money before sending for my mother. Like the other families on the hill, my folks barely spoke English. Before I was yogi, I was called Lottie, which is how my mother would say Larry, which was short for Lawrence, which is my real name, which nobody calls me anymore. On the hill, you were what you were. Everyone took care of anybody, of everybody. Everybody had worked hard and only small frame bungalows close to one another and always kept them neat. They'd hand their houses down to their children from generation to generation. There was real stability in the neighborhood. My sister, Josie, to this day, who lives in our old house on Elizabeth Avenue. In 1930s, things were quite, things were kind of tough. My pop worked in the, my pop worked in the uh, brick, brick kilns where the clay was actually baked 
and it was a sweat box. He also was a bricklayer on St. Louis Arena job. Whenever we'd go with Derry, he'd remind me he helped build that place. In the brickyard, he worked side by side with Giovanni Garagiola. Joe's dad. We grew up right across the street from each other. Our families became real close. <clears throat> it was only natural me and Joe were always best friends and still are since we were raised up together. I always, I almost don't remember a day not only for Joe. I was going to say something. That's so amazing that these neighborhoods produce baseball players. Or bat, you know, and, and how close they are to each other when they play together and when they grow up together. Well, you know what? Iron sharpens iron, and that's the uh, competition that uh, that sharpens the the you know because they you know it's, it's like if you're not in a lot of competition, you get lazy and you don't want to do you don't do stuff. But you get in a competition with these kids in the morning every single day, every single day of your life, you get you get really competitive. You want to show them up. So that's one of the things I love, I love about baseball too. You got anything to say? Okay. Maybe later in the show she'll have a little bit more of a uh, impact. Alright, like I said, we were bad for baseball as kids. Some, sometime believing that nothing else in the world existed. Our fathers, though, they, they built you back into reality. Especially if you come home late or show up, scuff shoes and torn pants. The old guys worked hard and didn't have much to spare. To their baseball was a waste of time. They expected your future was to find a regular job, work hard, bring home that paycheck. Pop one let my three older brothers, Tony, John, and Mike, pursue baseball even though they were darn good players. Tony, everyone called him lefty. Was that a heck of a left-handed hitter? The best ball player in the family. He played a little semi-pro when he wasn't working and was invited to try out for the Cleveland Indians. But Pop refused him. All my Pop refused him. All my brothers had to go work to support the household. The old man always tried to keep me in line, too. Especially when that 4.30 p.m. factory whistle blew. I immediately had to stop playing, get 15 cents from Mama, run to, run to Fossey's, the neighborhood saloon, and get a, get a 13, I'm sorry, get a two-teen of beer, which better be waiting for the pop at home on the table. When he got there, I had to be there, and the beer had to be there, or whap, whap, right on the knee. My first organized league was when I was about 12. We formed a gang called the Step, called the Stage, called the uh, Stage AC Athletic Club, and played in a YMCA league. With me, Joe. Joe, oh, Joe, alternating between pitching 
than catching. We didn't have any uniforms or even enough gloves to go around. So we got satisfaction being beating the sponsor teams who had uniforms. After eighth grade, after eighth grade I left Wade Grammar School for good to go work. By then, it was evident I was no scholar. Never saw much sense in going to school. I was pretty disinterested, played a lot of hooky, and generally frustrated my teachers. Whenever anybody asked me how I liked school, I'd say, closed. There was a big meeting with our parish priest at the house to discuss what was going on and to become of me. Finally, Finally, it was decided I would have school to get steady. I would leave school to get steady work and put a few dollars into the household, an important thing for the family of seven. I had no problems finding jobs, just trouble keeping them. I bounced around working on Coca-Cola truck in the morning, but by afternoon, I'd always run off to study some game somewhere. That's why I didn't keep any job going too long. It was, when Pop was convinced I was a loafer and bound for trouble, telling him that I really wanted to come become a professional ball player, made him even more angrier. He couldn't understand why I wanted to become a become a bum. I was lucky though because my Brothers, my brothers ganged up on Pop, pleading with him to give me a chance they never got. Finally, Pop caved and said I couldn't get anywhere in baseball in a reasonable time. I'd give it up and do something else. At 16, I joined American Legion Ball and learned the game's finer points. That was how I also got to be called Yogi, because we didn't have any benches or dugouts, and I sat with Arms full and legs crossed. A couple of my teammates, Bobby Hoffman and Jack, Jack McGuire, and I looked like a, and I looked like a yogi. In St. Louis, everyone loved the Cardinals. Who always either won the pennant or came close to it. Although I like the old Browns too, and Joe and I used to, Joe and I used to imagine ourselves playing for the Cardinals and Joe dream what actually could come true. Near the end of the depression, the Cardinals ran a WPA, Works, Works Progress Administration Clinic for young boys and me and Joe really soaked up Soaked it up when different players would appear. Those Cardinal teams, the Gas House Gang, were big when I was little. And a lady on, the, on our street, Mrs. Bel, Mrs. Beltran, brought a bunch of us to Sportsman Park and sang the Cardinals non-hole game. We'd watch for free on Saturdays in the upper seats in left field. Probably the only job I liked, you know. As a kid, was selling newspapers on the corner of on the corner of uh, King's Highway because one of my customers was Ducky Medwick, 
was a great cardinal. Great cardinal hitter, and I sort of and I sort of idolized. Medwick used to pin pinches over his head or near his toes to all fields. He didn't make hitting into some science. And I kind of used to, and I kind of used the same theory. If I could get to it good, if I could hit it good. Besides the pitcher throws, besides the pitcher throws, I've got a, I've got a hit. And what good does it do me if I don't swing? Whenever I got his paper, Medwick would take time to shoot the breeze. And he'd give me a nickel for a three cent paper, which is pretty good in those days. When the Cardinals held a trial called trial in 1942, Joe and I were eager, real excited. We were both catchers and left-handed hitters. We were also both determined to do everything to make an impression, and we both hit the ball pretty good that day. A couple of days after the trial, Bench Ricky, Branch Ricky, the Cardinals general manager, gave Joe a $500 signing bonus. It would go into effect when he graduated high school. Me? I got nothing. Ricky told me I was too awkward. I'd never become a major league ball player, simple as that. Yeah, I guess you could say I was pretty devastated. A scout, a scout finally convinced Ricky to offer me $250. And as much as I wanted to accept, I told him I had to get the same $500 Joe was getting. Well, he said, Forget it. Now I didn't begrudge Joe his bonus. Now I didn't begrudge Joe his bonus. He was my friend. But I felt I was as good as him. And my folks needed the money too. Looking back, I think Ricky knew he was I think Ricky knew he was a lame duck with the Cardinals. He knew he was going to go to the Dodgers and maybe was trying to hide me hide me. Maybe it was true, because I got a telegram in November from Ricky telling me to report next spring to Bear to Bear Mountain. Wow, that sounds nice. About 30 miles north of New York City, where the Dodgers held wartime training camp. But it came a few days after I had just signed with the Yankees for the same $500 bonus. Lucky for me, Leo Brown, who's in charge of our old our American Legion team, was friends with Johnny Schulte, a Yankee coach who lived in St. Louis. Brownie told him about Brownie told him about me. Told him I wasn't asking for much and I was worth it. So after the forty-two series, Schulte drove over to our house to meet with me and my folks. He said he did some checking around on me. And he assured me the Yankees would give me a $500 bonus, the same as I had wanted from the Cardinals, and $90 a month to play for North Pole, Virginia in the Class B Piedmont League. After he left, Pop was skeptical, but my brothers coaxed him into, the, into it. 
and begged him to give me that chance to said that baseball was a respectable career, not some lazy pursuit. I guess. Mom may be feeling a little bad. Mom may, mom may be feeling a little bad. My brother and brothers were deprived of their chance. They delivered the country when she urged him to let me try it just this once. A big, this was a big chance in the family and letting one of my, letting one of us go away. Years later, I'd tell Pop that if he had let, if he had let my older brothers go play, he would have been a millionaire. He'd say, blame your mom. Scouting is the heart of baseball. The Yankees always trusted their best scouts to beat the bushes to get the good players and their and their scouts could spot talent when they saw it. They had guys like Paul Critchell, who discovered Lou Gehrig, Joe Devine, who signed Joe DiMaggio, Tom Greenaway, who signed Mickey Mantle. I've kind of got a mark. Though as I was signing, as I was signed unseen, George Weiss, who had been running the Yankees farm system since 1932, took Johnny Tolschulte's word, who took Leo Brown's word. I made a bad mistake, though taking the Yankees' word about my bonus. There was some clause in my contract saying I wouldn't get it until I lasted a whole season in Norfolk. Worse than that, I ran out of money. Pretty cool. I, uh, you always notice that a scout usually has a bird dog scout, which means that he's the guy, too, that also goes to games. And um, the scout usually comes down to uh, to approve it of what he was seeing. And it's Leo Brown was a bird dog scout. And it reminds me of when I was uh, I was going to minor league games on a boy. He said this guy named John that was a bird dog scout. And he was supposed to be a bird dog scout for the for the Brewers, and uh, he's just a character. He's one of these guys that got all fired up over nothing, and he had this bat. He'd go around getting autographs on a bat and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun for me to see that, to see his excitement. But to also know that you don't need to be a Harvard graduate to be in baseball. So, he was a, he was a, he was a character. I didn't know much about my early ball, but Norfolk was no picnic. I got to know it, I got to know. In 1943, it was a busy military town swarmed by Navy families, defense workers, Sailors, civilians. It was overcrowded. There were times you couldn't even you couldn't even use the sidewalk. And my salary was ninety dollars a month, which also had to cover rent in a rooming house. Didn't go for any war and war inflated economy. I borrowed money from a teammate. Or money from 
fighting for an achievement before payday when I was hungry. Two times I rode home to mom and she slipped off with it. She slipped me off a few bucks, warning me to keep it quiet because my father would order me back home if he knew. Only when I went on a sit-down strike, telling my manager, Shaky Kane, what a, what a great name that is, Shaky Kane, I was too hungry to play. Someone said it was going. To, someone said the first hungry strike in the history of the Yankee organization. After a while, I got a raise. $5 a month. Said to be approved by Barrel, owner of the Yankees. Overall, that little bowling experience didn't sit, didn't sit with me too good. I vowed that as long as I was in baseball, I'd be determined to get what I was, what I would do. When I wasn't hungry, when I felt good, I, uh-oh, time out. Where are you going? Okay, all right. When I wasn't hungry, when I was felt good, I did good. And one time in a Norfolk, I had six hits and drove in 13 runs. And then I had 10 RBIs. The next day, by the end of the S season, I only hit 253 in 111 games as a regular catcher. But made it through to, made it through to collect the $500. I also got I also got word I was drafted and soon I was in my soon I was on my way to World War II Navy boot camp. As far as the Navy was concerned, I was just another sailor. I did six weeks of training at Bainbridge Naval Base in Maryland. Then was sent for infantry. Then it was sent for the amphibious training to Little Creek, Virginia. Or right next to or right next to Norfolk. Things are kinda dull. I wasn't assigned to anything in particular. Someone said that this was the Navy's version of hurry up and wait. <laughs> so I was looking to grab on to something to get out of there. At that moment, at the movies one time, they had an announcement asking for volunteers to serve for the rocket slip. I'm sorry, rocket ship duty. I didn't know what it meant. And it sounded like something something out of Buck Rogers. Within a few months, within a few weeks, I found our found out it was pretty something pretty different. It wasn't being part of a six-man six crew on a 36-foot boat, loading and firing rockets at the German machine guns and placements on Okinawa Beach, Omaha Beach, sorry. D-Day reminded me a lot of the 4th of July with all the, with all the foot flares, tracers, explosions, and everything. I remember our, I remember our commander yelling at me where I'd be better keep my head down if I wanted to keep it. Honestly, I didn't know enough or have enough to be scared. As we were watching the devil loading the fire, fire and firing, and keeping the keeping the boat moving, 
we were too, we were real glad then the Buckhead Beachhead, well, the Beachhead was secured and the invasion was a success. Now, January 1945, I got orders to report to the submarine base in New London, Connecticut. And I wasn't too thrilled since I didn't volunteer for any submarine, <coughs> submarining, submarine mission. Luckily, I was assigned to recreation duty because they didn't think I was a ball player but a boxer. So I became a janitor and bouncer in the base movie theater. The sub base had a good baseball team. They barnstormed against seven pro and professional teams, and I kept pestering to get to it, to get on it. It took me a while to convince the manager, Jimmy Gleason, that I was no joke. That I was a real, I was a real ball player who spent <laughs> year in the Yankee chain. He finally let me play, and when on an exhibition against the New York Giants, I got a bat. I got hits off wild pitches. I guess my potential intrigued Mel Ott, their manager, because when the Giants got back to New York, he went to Larry McPhail, who had just taken over the Yankees and offered $50,000 for me. <laughs> McPhail never saw me, but figured it would, if the Giants were offering the kind of money, I must have been worth keeping. He figured me, he figured he better meet me. So on a weekend liberty, I went into Yankee offices on 5th Avenue in my Navy uniform. Wow. McPhail kind of looked me over. I think he, I think his heart sunk. As he said later, he was a funny looking guy in a sailor suit. He had a homeless face, no neck, and the build of a sawed off weightlifter. My first thought was, do I turn $50,000 for this? for this? Never have I seen anyone who looked less like a ball player. By now I was to people thinking I was some kind of character. Nothing I could do about it. So I didn't. Never pretended I knew the King's English either. To my way of talking was the pain was the way people talk. Maybe I did look sort of funny for a ball player. He's the kind of a person who would be clumsy, which I wasn't. I knew how good I was. And that meant, and that meant I knew how bad I was too. Since I was short and blocky, the idea was to make me a catcher. Became that what a lot of catchers usually are. Besides, the Yankees are going to need one. Bill Dickey, one of the greatest ever, is <clears throat> getting ready to retire as a player. McPhail wanted to see what I could do and had me join New York Yankees Triple A team. It was one step away from the majors and became a good experience. I hit 314 with 15 homers and 77 games, playing a little out, outfield too. My roommate was Buddy, was Buddy, was Bobby Brown, a big league infielder from San Francisco who was also studying to be a doctor.
which he would eventually become. We always got along swell. Bobby knew all the things I didn't know. Bobby knew all the things I didn't know. Not just about baseball, but regular things about life and social situations. He gave good advice. He also used to carry these medical textbooks the size of phone directories with him on a road trip. Me? I like comic books. That's how one of the first Yogi Berra stories got spread around. One night, he was getting, he was getting sleepy and closed his book and said, Let's turn off the light. I told him one minute. I'm almost finished. When I turned off the light, I said, This was a good story. How many years come on? <laughs> we finished third and played Montreal in the International League playoffs. They had Jackie Robinson in a heck of a club. We lost the series and I lost my head against the plate umpire, the plate umpire Artie Gore. On a close play at the plate, I got fined because all hell broke loose over the plate. And if I had actually hit him, I might have gotten thrown out of baseball. I was lucky. I was lucky. And fortunate too. Since the Yankees actually paid my $500 fine. I also learned a big lesson. If you're, if you're a catcher, you better get along with the umpires. Should I call? To, should I call? Talk to umpires. <coughs> Watch during games, but that's usually what it was. Talking. People say I tried calling pitches for them. And Garagiola used to call me the last of the playing umpires, but I almost respected them if they did their best. Umpires are a uh, quite a thing in mean, minor league baseball, that's for sure. They don't like come into town and grab a hotel. They sleep in their cars usually. That's the way it was for these guys back then. And then they go and they try to call a game. And it's about 100 degrees out probably in St. Louis. Or in these other uh, baking fields that there's no grass on. You just have to really respect what they did back then because I, uh, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many good umpires back then that I can think of, you know, like, you know, it, it's just, it's hard to, uh, one of the umpires used to play for the Packers back in, back in the thirties and forties. His name was Cal Hubbard. He's in the Hall of Fame as a top offensive tackle. Well, he was a damn good umpire too. You know, so when you look at the, you know, look at the studs of baseball back then, you know, Cobb and Ruth and Greg and all these guys coming. You gotta give, give the umpires credit too. Because without umpires, you don't have anybody to officiate the game. So, anyway, back to the story. But yeah, that's a, uh, I don't like umpires, but that's because they usually make the Brewers lose. <laughs> oh, Lord. I was never supposed to be more than a triple A. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. 1946 wasn't the best year for the Yankees. They did become the first team to exceed 2 million in attendance. People were so excited to have baseball back after World War II. But the Yankees' veterans were rusty. 
and disappointing seasons. In September, Yankees had gone through three managers and were far behind first place Red Sox. On the train home from Montreal, somebody had a portable radio. And that's when I first heard the news. The Yankees have bought have brought Bobby Robert Brown, Frank Coleman, Vic Grashi, and Larry Barra. I just gotta say one thing too. They went through three managers and one was not named Billy Martin. I was never supposed to be more than a triple A player. At least that's what Branch Rookie said. Now I was called up by the Yankees to wear the same uniform number as Ruth Gehrig DiMaggio, with only a week left in the season. I tried not to get too jazzed up. It was probably a token look-see. Nothing to get too excited about. Nothing doing. My blood was tingling. How could any 20... How could any 21-year-old kid not be excited about the New York Yankees? All right. That's the end of the intro. And, uh, you know what? I'm going to have Sadie put... You want to show this uh, picture? So that's pretty cool about Ruth and you need to bear up because you know Ruth is a monster compared to Bear. <laughs> Ruth is an absolute monster compared to Bear. And uh, you know sometimes uh, sometimes Ruth was pro portrayed as a, a dummy. And I think I talked about it yesterday. That guy that guy the guy was immoral. The guy was. The guy still is the best player baseball has ever seen. And um, just because he had a stomach ache from hot dogs and stuff like that, just because he's, they they say he slept with all these women, I, I don't believe it. I don't. I do not believe that. So he was married. He had a good. He had a good marriage too. Her name was Claire. And uh, as it went on through the years, she was the one who was caretaker from too. So. Anyways, if nobody else has told you, they love you today. I do. And I'll, I'll come back and start reading more of this book this week because I just I love it. It's, it's so uh, it's so fresh as a history reminder of the players in the game, and it's so different from back in the uh, from now. But it's still got one thing. It's still got this little baseball. People still pitch it, throw it. Catch it still catches it, and the players still run when they hit the ball. So, you know what reality is? It's got the same principles, just different personalities. So, nobody else told me they love me today. I do, and that's with the power of love.